My fondest childhood memory is not having to spend 40 hours a week with people who make me feel angry so that I can afford to buy paper towels and laundry detergent. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shitty shit shows. How we be doing? Uh, For any new listeners, I'm Andrea. I'm a shit show, and I am currently sitting on the floor in my closet, uh, hunched over like Quasimodo (laughs) for for the visual there. Super professional over here. Uh, So today, we are joined by, I would like to just refer to her as a a rather remarkable human. I have a feeling that you will agree after listening to this. So we have Nzinga Harrison. She is a doctor. She is a a psychiatrist, which I think is, that's my favorite kind of doctor, I gotta say. Uh, I love me a psychiatrist. And so I first came across her through... Her podcast, um, it's not active anymore, but you can still find the episodes on whatever the hell it is that you're listening to this on. It's called In Recovery, where she covers a lot of addiction-related stuff, a lot of the same topics that we cover on here. I think especially for parents, it would be a good thing to to check out. But she's somebody that um, has dedicated her life to a lot of the topics that we talk about on this podcast. So you're in for a treat. She's also the co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health. So that is a mental health and addiction treatment provider. They're located in seven different states right now. So they are going to be sponsoring the pod for the next month. So you'll be hearing a lot more about them in the future weeks. And Nzinga is also going to be sharing about Eleanor as well. So one thing that I took away from this interview was that I learned about pieces. Yes, pieces. So we've talked about ACEs on the podcast, adverse childhood experiences, but unbeknownst to me, there's also something called pieces, positive childhood experiences. So it's been a little while since I've talked about ACEs, and it's a really fucking important topic and study that everyone needs to know about, so I don't think it hurts to to address it again. And actually, I don't think I've told the full backstory of it, which is it's actually pretty fascinating. So let me set the stage for you. It's 1985. Uh, we're in San Diego, and we are at an obesity clinic. You know, the tale is tale as old as time. That old classic start to a movie uh, in the 80s in San Diego at an obesity clinic, and uh, and our star is Dr. Vincent Folletti. So he was, I think it was, he was the head of the. I want to say the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. And so he was overseeing this obesity clinic, and he was trying to figure out why more than half of the participants within this obesity clinic had dropped out of the program for five straight years in a row. And when he kind of dug into the information, he saw that all these people who were dropping out of the program were actually people who were successful in the program. These were people who were actually losing weight. And then he looked into their medical records and he saw that they were all actually, all of them were born at a normal birth weight and that these were people that at some point in their life that they had 
abruptly gained a lot of weight. So these weren't people who just had slowly gained weight over a period of several years, but these were people who had suddenly gained a bunch of weight and that if they were ever to lose weight, that it wouldn't be long for them before they regained it all or gained even more back. And so he decides he wants to do some face-to-face interviews to see if he can gain any insights. And nothing was coming until one day when he literally had a slip of the tongue. So I guess one of the questions that he would ask the participants was, how old were you when you uh, first had sex or when you were first sexually active? And he by accidently said, how much did you weigh when you were first sexually active? And this woman responded, I was 40 pounds. I was four years old and it was my father. And so I'm not exactly sure if he started asking that question in the same way or whatever happened. But basically, he started to see that in the the following weeks that other participants also reported experiencing childhood sexual abuse. And then he was concerned that maybe there was some sort of an unconscious bias that he had. And so he asked some of his colleagues to conduct the next, I don't know, 100 interviews or so. And they also came back with the same results that all of these people had um, had endured childhood sexual abuse. And what he realized was that these people who were hundreds of pounds overweight, they did not view the weight as a problem, but rather the weight was a solution to a problem. So eating was a way that they self-soothed, and it was also a way that they felt safe. So having this extra weight on them helped them to feel invisible and ignored. And that not eating and losing weight increased their anxiety, their depression, and fear to levels that were so intolerable to them that they would quit the program and regain the weight. So this was the aha that this was rooted in childhood. So from that came the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. So it was CDC and and Kaiser Permanente teamed teamed up to do this. I think it started in, I want to say 95, but there were 17,000 total participants. I guess they already had access to their like general health records, but they were asked 10 questions, which are the 10 adverse childhood experiences, if they had experienced any of the following events during childhood. So I'm just going to read to these to you guys verbatim. So number one is, did a parent or other adult in your household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you feel afraid that you might be physically hurt? Two, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Three, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or actually have anal, oral, or vaginal intercourse with you? Uh, Four, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? 
Five, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? Six, was a biological parent ever lost to you through divorce, abandonment, or other reason? Seven, was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist? Basically, this this one goes on for a lot. Did you witness domestic violence is the question. Uh, eight is, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or used street drugs? Nine, was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And then 10 is, did a household member go to prison? So my ACE score is, let's see, I think it's a four. Uh, so here's the deal. So there's the question that's, is your parent an alcoholic or addict? And then there's the question, was a household member depressed or mentally ill? Um, I feel like, do you get a check for both? I mean, alcoholism is a mental illness too, in my opinion, so... If I were to say it's the same, my score would be, yeah, my score is a four, a four. Um, okay, so uh, two-thirds, so 67% of the study population had an A score of at least one. 20% reported uh, an a score of three or more, and 13% had a A score of four or more. And so through that, they, you know, they compared that to the, the medical records of, um, of the participants. So it found that um, when children are exposed to two ACEs, they are four times more likely to become alcoholics. If they're exposed to three or more ACEs, they are 3.6 times more likely to use illicit drugs. Four more ACEs were 12 times as likely to attempt suicide. And those with six or more ACEs, their life expectancy dropped by more than 20 years. And so there was a lot more um, health findings as far as just the increase to like cancers and diabetes and heart disease and all that stuff. It really, when you have a score of four or more, that's when they really see the, you know, the real increase in the devastating impact to both physical and mental health. Uh, so moving it along to pieces. So I think this study came out in 2018. I believe it was through John Hopkins, but I could be incorrect. And this is the positive uh, childhood experiences study. So basically what they found was that there are these pieces, these positive childhood experiences that can counteract, that can uh, mitigate the impact of adverse childhood experiences. And so there are seven of them here and we'll go through them. But here's the deal. You know, I feel like these are much more mm, subjective, not as cut and dry to answer as the aces are. So the first is being able to talk openly to a family member about your feelings and feeling heard, accepted, and supported. So I would say that that would be a no for me. <laughs> I definitely spoke openly, but I don't think that I am. Um, 
I was, I was heard, accepted or supported, or I mean, I was kind of supported, but in the sense of like being deemed the identified patient, um, being supported, that just fucked me up even more. (laughs) So the, the next one is, um, the belief that your family stood by you during difficult times. Uh, again, it's like yes and no. They stood by me, but in certain respects, I feel like they fucked me up even more by doing that. Next is feeling safe and protected by an adult in the home. I think as a kid, I would have told you that I felt safe, but I clearly did not, especially if, you know, you're being left alone with your alcoholic mother. Next would be feeling supported by friends. I mean, I would say, yeah, sort of, I did. So next would be having a sense of belonging and connection in high school. A big fat no. Next would be enjoyment of participation in community traditions. I would say yes. Then lastly, a relationship with at least one non-parent adult who takes genuine interest in you. So I would say yes to that. So I guess I would say that my pieces score is a a three. So feeling supported by friends, enjoyment of participation in community traditions, and a relationship with at least one non-parent adult who takes genuine interest in you. I will include some information in the show notes if you want to learn more about pieces. I, I also include an article that I found where it talks about how you can try to foster pieces within your own children. I was going to read it, but I feel like I've been talking longer than I expected to be talking. Um, But bottom line is that there are things that we can do to help our kids lessen the impact of ACEs. I know that there's a lot of parents listening who, you know, realize that perhaps they've been screwing their kids up prior to realizing that they were an adult child. Well, it's never too late. You can help you know, foster these pieces and and give your kids a, a leg up in, in dealing with all of that. So hopefully that was helpful and interesting for you. Let's get the damn show on the road. But first, I want to give a shout out to my newest shit shows, my newest members of the Cool Kids Club known as my Patreon Uh, So this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you come to meet people who get you, who understand you, who will not judge you, uh, who will support you, and who will laugh with you while we do it. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these shit shows, these fine-ass shit shows. Aaron, Jessica, Jody, Julie, Kelly, Sandy, Mark, Maggie, Marlo, Carrie, Rachel, Cindy, Jenny, another Jenny, uh, please unsubscribe. Yes, that is their name. Please unsubscribe. Um, waiting to see you show up in one of the meetings. Please unsubscribe. I'm really hoping that's your real name. Uh, Jessica, Danielle, VL, Bonnie, Nicolette, and Lauren. Well, thank you. How about the rest of y'all damn shit shows? Go damn the join Patreon. For those of you who weren't here when I, so one time I accidentally said, damn the join Patreon, and we've just stuck with it ever since. So how about you go damn the join Patreon? You can also give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod, and most importantly, you need to give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Most importantly, on Apple. I'm trying to get to a thousand 
reviews before the end of the year. We can get there. I think I'm at 9.54. I know you're listening right now, and I know that you're listening to me on an iPhone. And what you're going to do right now, if you don't know, go down, go to that adult child thing where you're listening to your podcast, and you just scroll down to the bottom. Scroll down to the bottom, and there's just a little area where you can tap the five-star reviews. It's so easy, and you will be doing the Lord's work, okay? So thanks. So guys, we've been chatting for quite a while. <laughs> I already, no, no, 17 minutes. Almost. Yeah. So I'm joined by Dr. Nzinga Harrison. She is a badass, just simply put, CMO, co-founder of Eleanor Health. And um, yeah, if I like went through your LinkedIn, that would be like the hour episode. <laughs> it would be the hour. So welcome. And it's Andrea, not Andrea. Oh, thank you, Andrea. And in Zinga, you pronounced it perfectly. Because if it was on, it would have to be Andrea Ashley. And that just sounds ridiculous. I mean, Andrea. That is really Ashley. my last name. That's really, I'm not one of those. Oh, girls your last on- name really is Ashley. Ashley. Oh. <laughs> I didn't want you to think I'm one of those girls on Facebook that like puts their middle name as their last name. You know, what Ashley I'm really about. is your last name. Yes. I'm Got not it. one of those girls. Okay? Got it. Harrison one, really is my last name too. One time I said that to somebody and it turns out they were one, they of, were one of those girls. Yes. And I was like, open mouth, insert foot. <laughs> yes. Oh Lord. Okay. So I've been doing some light stalking. I can't find a whole lot about your childhood. Yeah. Interestingly. Um, I think I share pretty freely about my childhood, but people, and I think this gets to the experience you had where you got all the way to adulthood before one person said something that made it so crystal clear to you how much an impact your childhood was having on your adulthood life. And so I share freely about my childhood. I think um, it doesn't make the cut most of the time because people don't understand how our childhoods carve our life journeys. So um, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1976. I'm a Virgo, stereotypically. Um, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. And growing up, um, my mom and dad were here. I had an older brother that um, with my dad but he has his own mom. And then me, my older brother and my younger sister were kind of the trio that lived in the house with my mom and my dad. Understanding now that I've gone to medical school and become a psychiatrist, my dad had really significant PTSD from the Vietnam War. When I was growing up, we did not we knew that he like came back from the war. Right. But I couldn't fully understand how that was turning into the parenting experience that I was Were having. they married when he went over there? Uh no. So he yeah. went over as a teen. He went over as okay. a kid, like 19, straight out of high school. Um, yeah, was in combat, came back to a super hostile United States, hostile to Vietnam soldiers, especially hostile to um black soldiers. 
and in Indianapolis, Indiana, where racism was legit hardcore and the norm. Um, and so growing up, my dad was electrical engineer by night and commander of the local Black Panther militia by day. Wow. I can't believe you didn't see this on the internet. I couldn't find, I didn't see that anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So he started the Indianapolis chapter of the Black Panther militia, wow. which went on to be the most active chapter in the country. Um, so he's an activist. My mom, also an activist, was a school teacher in the public um, school system. And she spent her entire career in the Indianapolis public school system, ultimately was chief of human resources. And so I tell those three pieces dad with PTSD, commander of the Black Panther militia, mom, a public school teacher, the racism of Indianapolis, like all of those are formative mm -hmm. towards who I am today, mm -hmm. what my life is today, what my coping strategies are, what my, you know, passions are, that sort of thing. Um, other thing that's very important for this pod um, which also you're like, I'm a psychiatrist and you're like, yeah, Katie predicted this. Um, is lots of substance use disorder on both sides of the family. And very interesting. So when I was um, growing up on my mom's side of the family, lots of alcohol use disorder. That's when crack was making a big splash on the scene and then <laughs> it was having its moment we it's didn't great opening that. yeah we <laughs> didn't need that moment crack no thank you um opioid use disorder heroin and so on my mom's side um the approach was like we all knew which of our aunts and uncles had addiction we loved them they were my grandmother was like these are my children you can always come home doesn't mean you can live here because of safety, but like, we love you. Mm -hmm. This is an illness. Mm -hmm. You can always come home. We will try to help you treat this illness, but it wasn't, you're a bad person. It wasn't keep it a secret. It's just like, this is what it is. We're a family. This is what we do. My dad's side, on the other hand, was kind of like shush, shush. So you knew my my grandmother, his mom had really significant alcoholism. Another aunt had, um, uh, drug use disorder, as well as schizophrenia, I think, not sure. But it, it kind of just like didn't talk about it. You didn't get kicked out of the family, but kind of was just like a different dynamic over there. Um, and so I think like I decided young to be a doctor and a teacher. And but I didn't know that psychiatry, I didn't know anything about psychiatry. I never heard of it, honestly, other than like Freud. So I didn't. Why know did that, you want to be that. a doctor? Um, I am not sure because I didn't have any doctors in my family, but I loved just like science, human body, anatomy. I was just like, so the only doctor I knew was my pediatrician. Um, I did <laughs> not think he was a good doctor, to be clear. I'm like six years old. I'm like, not a good doctor. <laughs> no bueno. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be a better doctor than you. I don't even know what a doctor does. Then I'm going to do it better. Um, and then, so I don't know how I decided that I wanted to be a doctor and a teacher because that was the only doctoring experience I was having. Um, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then 12 years old, got diagnosed with scoliosis mm. while my pediatrician was on vacation. And I saw one of his partners. And I was like, see, I don't know. You knew, you um, knew. 
Um, even though I couldn't put my finger on what I thought, but I went to go see this orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Mark, heart eyes emojis. And Dr. <laughs> Mark, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon hmm. because Dr. Mark, now I can look back with adult eyes to my childhood and see what it was. The first doctor never saw me, mm -hmm. right? We walked in the room. He talked to my mom. He talked down to my mom mm -hmm. as if he like didn't explain things. He just talked in medical language. And then when she asked questions, he asked, he acted like a little kind of put out mm -hmm. that she was acting questions. And I was like, I don't like him. And then I went to Dr. Mark and Dr. Mark was like, how's cheerleading? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your friend. What do you want to do with your life? Oh, you want to be a doctor? Let me explain spinal anatomy to you, right? Like it was such a different human felt like partnership type of experience. Um, and so I said, I'm going to be a surgeon. Then I went to medical school and I don't have the hand-eye coordination to be surgerizing anybody. Even though I loved it, I was like, this is not- You went to Penn, job. right? Just, yeah, I went to Penn. I grew, up in, I grew up outside of Philly in Bryn Mawr. Hey. Oh yeah, Bryn Mawr. I went to Howard then, DC for mm -hmm. college undergrad. Um, and that was the most freeing experience of my life. So having been a black girl growing up in racist white Indiana, um, and how many other black kids were in your high school class? Uh, so graduating? I, yeah, I went to North central. So we were definitely the minority, but, it, uh, and I was usually the only black kid like in my class, but in my graduating class, I had a lot of black friends in my graduating class. Um, but the academic experience was very like, you're the only one. Mm -hmm. um, and my father was commander of the Black Panther Militia. So, I mean, like, we got calls all in the middle of the night, like, niggers, we're going to kill you. Right? Like, that's me in high school answering the phone in the middle of the night. What was your understanding of, was that part very open? Oh, yeah. Very open. Um it was like we were raised activists, right? So like one of my favorite pictures is my mom and my brother, who was probably only like two years old. I wasn't even born yet. She's got her big afro and he's got his little afro because he's a little toddler. And she's holding a sign that's like fun public schools. Who gets hurt? The kids, right? They're on a picket line. Mm -hmm. So like we were raised activists. Raise your voice on behalf of those who are being marginalized. Raise your voice against injustice. Mm -hmm. speak up, do something, right? Like be an upstander. Um, and we were raised in a Kwanzaa community and the Kwanzaa community is all about like pouring into your identity and being a community, supporting each other and fighting against injustice. Like it was remarkable and amazing um, and formative. And like you read about me on the internet right now and you're like, oh yeah, I can, I can see this childhood turning into this adulthood. Right. Was it scary ever? Uh, yeah, it was scary sometimes, but that's not the overarching memory of it. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm sure, like, I don't remember those phone calls in the middle of the night with being scared. I remember them just kind of being like, uh, be more creative next time. You're not the first one to call and threaten us. Right. Like new punchline. Um, heard that one before. Um, but yeah, you definitely get adrenaline in protesting. And um, but my dad also kept us 
very safe, right? Like he, I'm sure, did a whole bunch of things that we as kids did not know about. Yeah. Yeah. Did not do. Um, But yeah, it's formative. It's formative. And so I say I was raised an activist. And then I was raised by my mom. Education was the bag. Like we were all in it doing all the educational things, which was amazing. Um, And then, so when I went to Penn, you know, in medical school, you have to rotate. I went to be a surgeon. You have to rotate through all of the specialty, all of the different parts of the body. And psychiatry was six weeks. Do you know, I don't know if he was the head of psychiatry then, Dr. Ronald Lehman? He was not. At that time, I know okay. of him though. He was my family therapist. He was my family therapist. Oh, yeah. Listen to this story. So we would go to family. This was when I was in the eighth grade. And um, I told him that I was smoking pot every day. Because uh-huh. sometimes he would meet with me individually and then uh-huh. with my parents. And so he would ask me about it every week. When, and then at one point he goes, you know, I think that you're um, an addict. Uh-huh. So then I ended up coming home drunk one night and told my mom that I smoked pot every day. Mm. And then they ended up finding out that he knew and they were really pissed off that he didn't tell them and we had to stop seeing him. But I loved him. Oh, what a loss. What a massive loss. Yeah, right? he's probably not any li- alive anymore, but God, I would love to connect with him if he was. I loved yeah, him so much. What a, what a massive loss. I don't know if he's alive, um, but... He was amazing. we go to his house. Yeah, you should see. Like, I can't remember, like, the way Dr. Lehman affected you as you were a young person. I can't remember Dr. Mark's last name, or I would try to find Dr. Mark and be like, thank you. <laughs> I talked right? to my my regular psychiatrist. I saw her from 13 to 18. I, I, I called her about a year ago and uh-huh. you know, told her about the podcast and everything. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. That's when like, I, we would like go and have actual sessions. Same thing with Dr. Liebman. Now I feel yeah. like all it is, is like 15 minutes in and out, only meds only, no time for chat chat. They really fractured it. They being um, kind of managed care, managed care, trying to get the cost of care down, really fractured the therapy experience so that pushed therapy to licensed clinical social workers, PhD psychologists, licensed professional counselors, and slimmed down when you go in a system, psychiatry to quote, just med management, which it never can be. Um, if you practice it effectively, in my opinion, it never can be. I think that of all of medicine, like it always has to be relationship. You always have to be getting to know each other, giving some pull and pull, sharing something about yourself. But that is like super duper a phenomenon of managed care where it's like psychiatrists are the most expensive. Mm -hmm. So have them see the most number of people in one day to maximize the dollars revenue, Mm -hmm. right? All the while chipping away at that therapeutic rapport, which is one of the most powerful tools we have. Absolutely. Okay, sorry I derailed you. But I probably should figure out if he's still alive when I get off. Yes. Loved him. Okay, so you were doing rotations. I was doing rotations. And then I was actually like a pretty vocal psychiatry opponent. Because I was like, I came to medical school to learn medicine. Um, Why do I have to do six weeks of psychiatry? I only get to do three weeks of emergency medicine, right? Like. Uh, and then I went to my psychiatry rotation and I was like, oh, snap, 
Yeah, I love the crazies. Give it to me. I get to spend time with people, right? Like I did my rotation at this um, community-based residential psychiatric unit. It had adults and um, older. Where was it? In the city? Yeah, it's called Friends. No, it's outside of Philadelphia. It's called Friends. I wonder if it's still there. Let's see. Friends Psychiatric Philadelphia. Because it's not in Philadelphia. It's actually in... I'm going to tell you. Oh, it does say it's in Philadelphia. Mm. It was far, though. But, um, yeah, I did it at Friends. Um, and my attending psychiatrist was just this brilliant biological, psychological, social relationship. He was like, if you are not learning about all of those for the patient you're taking care of, and he was like, if you're not trying to figure out what to do about all of those he was like, you're not doing your job. And so I learned about the biology of behavior. And that's what attracted me to medicine in the first place, right? It's like biology, physiology. Um, but relationships had always been my thing, which is why I didn't think my pediatrician was a good doctor. And he was like, you've got to pour into <laughs> relationship. You've got to look your patients in the eyes. You've got to see them. You've got to let them see you, right? Socially, I was raised an activist and it like very quickly became clear to me that the health system didn't care if people with mental health conditions died, mm -hmm. actually created conditions that increased the chance that people with mental health conditions would die. Stigma was killing people like left and right. And then it was like even more so for people with addiction, right? Like, of yeah, of course you're going to die because you're making bad decisions. That's what you get. Right. And I was like, I was like, biology, relationships, psychology, like we think we think same like you. Now that you're doing adult child podcast, you're understanding how so many of your decisions that you think you're making today, like I'm an adult person, I'm making decisions are being made by your child self. Exactly. Right. And I was like, childhood psychology biology activism I'm like I will not stand by and let the healthcare system force these people into death right mm -hmm. I was like this dress fits perfectly and so I told my girlfriend uh, my my roommate at the time I was like I think I might be a psychiatrist and she was like oh what she was like you <laughs> and I was like yeah me and I did my fourth year rotations in addictions and where'd you do that? Yeah. So everything's at Penn, but I did uh, at the actual hospital hub, hospital university mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania. I was on the liver transplant mm -hmm. psychiatry team. And so we did the pre and post transplant evaluations. And like, it just felt like every single day we were having to beg for this person to get a chance to stay alive just because mm -hmm. they had had alcohol, you know, just because they had alcoholism that had led to this liver disease or they had had, you know, opioid use disorder, IV drug use to lead to hepatitis C to lead to this liver disease. It was like a lifetime ban. Like you don't even get mm -hmm. to be considered for access to life-saving interventions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. Um, and again, the psychiatrist that I was with, Bob Weinrieb, was like phenomenal and teaching me so much. And then I did research at the VA in Philadelphia. Get this, Andrea, this is my research. 
What percentage? So it was out of the methadone clinic for veterans who were being treated for opioid use disorder. The standard of care was check for hep C, right? What percentage of veterans getting treated for hep C? And then of those getting tested, of those getting tested, what percent have a positive test? Of those with a positive test, what percent does anybody ever tell them their test is positive? What like vets were straight up out there dying from hepatitis C, even though the VA knew knew and wasn't telling them. And the processes were just not built to like, I was like, what? And I was like, oh, this solidifies. This is what I'm going to do. Fast forward 20 years serving people with mental health conditions and addictive disorders and advocating and being an activist and trying to help people understand just how important our childhoods really are. And I love your tagline, right? Like, our childhood does not have to take away the rest of our life options, but we have to know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. We have to know what to do with those childhood experiences to turn them into experiences that can help us make choices instead of our child making choices for us. So many people are in this position. Or they don't. Yeah. Or that not even like what to do with it, even know that it's there to begin with. Even know that it's there to begin with. Right. I know, you know, the ACEs score, the ACEs. So many people I take through the ACEs and it is like, holy, I went, I did the ACEs myself on myself. And I think my ACEs score was five. And I was like, holy shit, my ACEs score is five. I'm a psychiatrist. I take people through the ACEs all day. (laughs) I need to be taking myself through the ACEs. Right. Yeah. Have you heard of pieces? No. Positive childhood experiences. There are seven and they mitigate the risk of adverse childhood experiences. And this is like in Zynga's story. So you have four more ACEs that predicts your chronic medical illnesses, physical and mental into adulthood. You have um, three or more pieces and that mitigates the risk of your ACEs. Is so it spelled P E P C E S positive childhood experiences? Okay. Yes. So my ACEs score is five. My PISA score is seven. Wow. So that PISA score is totally undermining that ACEs score of five. And I'm like, I think this is something we can do for adult children, <laughs> right? For people who have had an ACEs score 10, 9, 8, which is who I'm taking care of all day, every day, like pieces works even as adults. So if we can be equipping communities to give pieces to kids, but also as we turn into adults, this is a a lot of AA, Andrea. When you look at the pieces, you're going to be like, AA, 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 AA. Oh, your initials are AA too. That's cute. I know. No kidding. (laughs) <laughs> destined destined um huh i have to think about this um, you know, what was my pivotal moment so in psychiatry training they encourage you to go see a psychiatrist so that you can know what it's like on the other side of the chair so as part of my psychiatry training i went and i saw a psychiatrist and she's like okay tell me about childhood and i'm like telling her about all of these traumatic experiences that I did not view as traumatic. Yeah. That I didn't view as traumatic. And she's like, you deliver this childhood as if 
it is not wild. And I was like, is it wild? And she was like, <laughs> she was like this is one of the wildest childhoods that I've heard, right? And I think it was just because I had so many of those pieces wrapped around me that it mitigated the the damage um that could have that could have come. But that was my when that psychiatrist said to me like you realize we have a lot to work on from your childhood and I was like, "What? We do?" That what was, was one of the biggest nuggets for you to work through? Or what how about this? What was a faulty limiting belief that resulted from your childhood? Oh, a faulty limiting belief. You were the hero child, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely the hero child, still the hero in my adult life today. Um, so I'll fast forward. I just recently did a course of EMDR. It was amazing. So I got sick on an airplane in November and like, was sick mid-flight. It was very scary straight off of the airplane into an ambulance to the ER type of thing. And so I thought to myself, I don't know how I'm ever going to fly again. And then I fly constantly for work and recreation. So I was like, this, I cannot afford to let this lay down. And so I went to get a therapist um, early on in the process. And one of my social worker friends was like, you should do EMDR. And I was like, what? And she was like, this is a trauma. And I was like, I don't really consider this a trauma. And so this was one of my light bulbs was like my inability to see myself as experiencing trauma. Do you think is it um, related to not wanting to see yourself as a victim in a way? Sure. Although I wouldn't even put it that lightly, mm -hmm. not wanting to see myself as a victim. Like, I just don't. Like, I was raised an activist. Mm -hmm. My dad says when he did um, his Vietnam training, there's always a way out. This is for like, if you get captured, there's always a way out. You think you're trapped, but you can't let yourself think you're trapped. You have to know that there's always a way out and you just keep scanning until you find the way out. So that was put and into vigilance to the max. <laughs> well, let me talk to you about the routine that it was to even sit down in a restaurant with my dad when I was. Yeah, little. I would like to hear about how his how his trauma showed up as a father. Oh, man. So. First of all, heavy drinking and marijuana, which at some point he just stopped. Um, but when I was little, little, I would say like less than 10, lots of heavy drinking, lots of marijuana. Uh, we all knew there was a tiptoe dynamic for sure, right? Like easily triggered, don't necessarily know what the trigger is going to be. Some of the triggers, we know what they are. Um, cars backfiring, forget it. Mm -hmm. uh, in a crowd which is, um, which is incredible because he was like the leader of the crowd, right? Like he was bringing the crowds together, go to a restaurant. We all knew to just stand back and wait because he has to scan the entire thing. He has to look for the table that has the widest view that is closest to egress. Like we all knew the routine. And if that table was not free, 
and there were 30 other tables free and we were starving. Just hold your starvation because we are not sitting down until that table <laughs> is free. Um, the movie Platoon came out. Jesus Christ, why did he go see that movie? That was a very different. We were all like, Jesus Christ, why did he go <laughs> see that movie? But still didn't have the concept that like this is an illness, right? Like it just became like impossible um, to live with him for a long time after he saw that movie. It's because he was suffering. We didn't know he was suffering. We just thought he was suffering us. Um, yeah, she thought he was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, like, oh my god, nobody wants to be around you. On the other hand, he's like the funniest, just life of the party. You love being around him when you love being around him. You don't when you don't. Um, so yeah, a lot of things, but just got built into the normal routine of like, this is just how it goes. And then you talk to other people and you're like, Oh, I mean, you know, nobody threw a Molotov cocktail through the window of your friend's house. You know that. Yes, they th probably it was the KKK threw Molotov cocktails through the bedroom windows of the house I grew up in. Right. So like, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but <laughs> I know you're like, uh, you're like my psychiatrist. You're like, ma'am, your childhood. <laughs> totally. Well, we only know what we know. We only know what we know. We only know what we know. And so you put your finger on it pretty fast. This EMDR course that I did was very much like um, you don't always have to know what to do in every crisis situation. Mm. And I was like, like, that was what I had to get rid of from that airplane episode because I was just like. I don't even know what to do. Like I almost lost consciousness. It was this whole thing. And I was like, if I lose consciousness on this plane, what in the world? I won't be able to control this situation. I'm the controller mm -hmm. of every emergency. And my therapist is like, yeah, you don't have to be. And I was like, well, then who will be? What is this freedom you're doling out in this session? Do you, and it's okay if you don't, but do you want to talk about your brother at all? Yeah, my brother is in prison. I would love to talk about my brother. Thank you. So that's funny. You found my brother. I did find that. Yeah. So my brother is three and a half years older than me. And the summer, uh, the March, he was in between sophomore and junior year of college. Where I was, was he? In high school, Jackson State. So he had taken a year off in between. So he would have been going back in the fall studying um, veterinary science. He's our animal whisperer. That's in Mississippi? Yeah, Mississippi, yeah. Mississippi Jackson, Mississippi. And um, just got caught up in this super awful situation. So like, I remember I was in school. I was like headed to first period. And one of my best friends, Carmen, came up to me and she was like, uh, Samuel Debo got arrested for that triple murder in Carmel. And I was like, one, I don't know what triple murder you're talking about. But two, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, she's like, I saw it on the news. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Because obviously, that is not something my brother would be caught up in. One. Two, if he was, I think I would know before you saw it on the news. Right? 
And she was like, okay. But she was pretty much like, we've grown up together for the last 18 years. I know your brother. It said his name. And I was just like, doesn't make any sense. Literally, it just went out of my head. I went to school the rest of the day. And then later in the afternoon, saw my aunt kind of walking down the foyer of the school. And I was like, oh, man, I'm about to get in trouble because I was a plus a plus honor roll president of the senior class, Mm -hmm. also skipping class kind of student. Right. And so I thought my skipping class had caught up with me. And I saw my aunt walking towards me like I could tell something is wrong just in her the way she's carrying herself. And um, she got up to me and I was like already about to start my story about why I'm not currently in class, which is why I see you here. <laughs> She's like, um, your brother got arrested for those murders in Carmel. I'm here to pick you up from school. Where and is Carmel? Is that in Carmel any- is a suburb. Yeah, it's a suburb of Indianapolis. It's only probably like 15 or 20 minutes northeast of um, Indianapolis. And at that time, Carmel was not a place where black people go. Um, it mm. was it was the rich white suburb. And like you just you knew you were going to get police profiled if you went to Carmel. So you certainly didn't go after night for safety reasons. But even during the day, it was just like a hassle. And so I was like, wow, Carmen was right. But it still couldn't compute. But then we um went home and it was like, a real thing and the story is that he was working at the pizza place and these two guys he met working at the pizza place and blah 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 they become friends they're smoking weed and this one day they're like want to go smoke some weed with these rich kids we met in Carmel and he's like yeah and they were actually going up there to rob the place I don't know I don't know what the whole I don't know any of that, but once they got there, um, the lead guy like pulled a gun on my brother and was like, you can rob the place or I will shoot you. Those were the people that he worked with? One of the guys that he worked yeah, with? The, uh-huh. other two, the other two co-defendants. And so my brother was upstairs robbing the place. There was a young girl and her brother who was a young adult, a young, an older adolescent, young adolescent, older adolescent, and an older guy. And um, my brother was upstairs robbing the place and then at some point came downstairs and stumbled on a massacre and he took the police back to the scene because he said like I thought if I just told them what happened everything would be fine and it was not because first of all uh, I was like, did you go up, grow up a Black person in Indianapolis? And did you grow up with your father as the commander of the Black Panther militia? Um, but so all of the headlines were Black Panther, commander, militia, son, right? Like you wouldn't have even known the two perpetrators. You wouldn't have even known my brother that forensic supports my brother was not down there when those kids got killed mm-hmm. um so talk about trauma he obviously super traumatized but that was 28 years ago mm-hmm. and he has been in prison ever since we've been fighting ever since it was um 
you know, they, the main guy whose name is Raymond, took a plea deal to testify that my brother participated in the murder so that he could get the life penalty, not the death penalty. The other guy, Anthony, refused to testify that my brother participated in the murders. They held him in contempt of court. Mm -hmm. um, I think both of them are on life sentences also, but ultimately, and we couldn't believe it, which is funny because I have um, legit zero faith in the criminal legal system. Certainly back then I had zero faith based on our experiences in Indianapolis. My brother had no criminal history. Mm. Was a college kid between years working at a pizza place. But he was the son of the Black Panther commander. And he got charged with 10 felonies. They offered him a plea deal. He said, I will absolutely plead guilty to robbing the house, to burglarizing. He was like, I will not plead guilty to killing any kids. He's like, I will never, ever, ever say that I killed any kids. He's like, I won't even kill animals. Why would I kill kids? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, and so you can't take a partial plea. You have to plead to all the charges. So he said no and went through the trial and the trial was. Were you there every day? No, I was in college. So I went off to, he went in jail, March, 1994. I graduated high school, May. I went off to Howard in August. So I was not there for any of the trial. I went back to be a character witness during the sentencing. Um, mm -hmm. And then I came back to school and I was not there for the sentencing. But I remember my mom called me. I knew his sentencing um, was that day. And I remember it was my sophomore year of college. I was in my dorm room. That was before cell phones. So I'm like on the little, you know, corded mm -hmm. phone. Um, and she called me and she was like, um, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just standing in the middle of my room. I was like, tell me what happened. And she was like, they found him guilty on all charges. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe it. It's one of the, there are only a couple of times in my life that I can remember being completely at a loss. And that's one of them. I remember being just completely at a loss. I could not believe that they would sentence a 21-year-old kid who hadn't killed anybody to three consecutive life sentences. Mm. I couldn't believe it. And so they did. And we've been fighting ever since. Um, he won one appeal that said the prosecution had not proven intent. So he could not be sentenced to life. So they took him back for resentencing and sentenced him to 240 years. I was like, so we're fighting. We're fighting. He has a great yeah, what, lawyer Is there now. anything? What, where is it at currently? He has a great lawyer now um, who, this is what's so interesting. His lawyer, which we found by the grace of the higher power, himself was wrongly accused and convicted when he was 17, was sent to prison 
where he spent 10 years from 17 to 27, taught himself to practice law while he was in there, worked with lawyers, eventually got his like, I don't know what the right words are. So if these are the wrong words, got his conviction overturned, whatever, got out of prison and now has dedicated his entire law practice to helping people who have been wrongly convicted get out of prison. It is like the hardest, most unbelievably impossible process to get a person that you know should not be in prison out of prison. It is wild. But so his name is Jared Adams. He's on the case. It's amazing. Um, so he's working on it. So this goes back to what my dad said earlier, right? Which is like, there's always a way out. Bam. Did your dad, was he alive at the time when all this happened? My dad is alive now. He's still not. Yeah. So did he, was there a lot of guilt there from him? Uh, yes, but not that you would have recognized. Um, what there was, was a fight, right? So like they originally very early in the trial process, um, they were like, the death penalty is on the table for Kofi, Modibo, and Jabu. That's my brother. And my dad looked into all of the news cameras. I was standing right next to him. All of the news cameras for the evening news. And he was like, if my son gets the death penalty, numerous other death penalties will be carried out. And we were all like, <laughs> we were like, I don't feel like that was the right thing to say. But he was just like, listen, like, you're not going to kill my son for something he didn't do. Mm -hmm. Trying to get at me, which is what we all like. If you follow the media, you would have never known that the person who actually killed those kids was mm -hmm. not my brother. You would have never known. Right. And so, like, my brother, he's such how an awesome is, person. How does one feel like I don't I mean, what has his journey been yeah, so that's what's so remarkable. He thankfully was a black belt martial artist and meditator mm -hmm. before he went in. Mm -hmm. And so he meditates and, and an avid reader and, and a learner of language languages. So he like has learned a few languages while he's been in there. He got a degree in ancient Asian history. He meditates. He practices martial arts. He, you know, serves as a mentor um, for other people that are in there. But so one of my childhood friends, Natalie Hopkinson, um, is a professor now, is a journalist. And she wrote a book. And he had been in for 10 years. And in this chapter in the book, she calls it Boy Friday because his name Kofi means boy on Friday. And she asked him, she was like, you've been in prison 10 years for murders you didn't commit. And you seem like the same Odibo I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And he said, they can lock up my body, but they can't lock up my mind because I was raised to be free. Mm -hmm. And I really, like, I go back to those pieces, right? Because he grew up with a higher ACE score than I did. Mm -hmm. But those pieces are so protective. They're just so protective. And... It's amazing to me. It's 28 years. I just saw him. Yeah, I saw that on your ago. Instagram. Yeah, three weeks ago for the first time. Where is he located? In Indiana, Wabash Correctional Valley. Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. 
And I mean, every time I come to visit and it's been three years and the visitation CEO is the same woman and she's like, oh, it's been forever. I'm like, yeah, good to see you. She's like, I always enjoy when your family comes to visit because y'all have, she's like, somehow like joy. Mm. 28 years in, you know, it's just, he's um mm. remarkable. He's remarkable. And so he says 95% of the kids he's come, he's seen come through there over the last 28 years don't need to be in prison. He's like, they were born onto a path, which is ACE. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. born onto a path that kind of wrote their destiny. But he said, you will never hear him advocate to abolish prison. He's like, we need prison because the other 5% it is not <laughs> like yeah. it is not safe for them to be in society. They do not need to get out. And I was like, okay, definitely heard you. But like, here's an example. He's um dorm rep. So the dorm rep is like the liaison between the prison administration and the guys in his dorm. And he's like, if I he's so proud. He's like, you know, leadership runs runs in our DNA. He's so proud. And he's like, he's like. I'm the best dorm rep ever. He's like, I talk to guys. He's like, I open the flap. I make eye contact with them. I treat them like humans. He's like, I'm helping them out. He's like, listen, you have to put in a form for everything. Every request you have to put in a form. They don't know what form to put in or they write the form up in a way that's like actually not going to be helpful, not going to get their needs met. So here are two examples. One, there's a guy uh, who's in on drug charges. He had active addiction. That is why he was selling drugs. So Indiana has this early release program, which shout out Indiana. This is amazing. If you do drug treatment and, you know, stay on the up and up mm -hmm. in prison, you can get your sentence shortened and you can get out early. So he had done the drug treatment. He was on the up and up, but it's not automatic, which like, can you make it easy for people to get out of prison? So there's a certain form you have to do. He doesn't know what form. <laughs> My brother helps him with the form. My brother writes up the form for him. The guy gets his hearing to get his sentence shortened within like a week of turning in the form. He wakes a couple of weeks. So my brother's like, best dorm rep ever. I was like, yeah, you're killing it over there. That's amazing. He just writes me a message. The judge could not put in the order for him to be released because the treatment program had not yet sent over the paperwork. I'm like, you, this man is staying in prison because- Because they're fucking lazy. I know, it's ridiculous. Because I was like, oh my, he was like, I am so mad. He was like, I am pissed as if this is happening to me. This is my brother and the message that he sent me. But here's the other one. There's a guy, whatever, the way his sentence was written up, Um. If you serve a certain amount of time and you're on the up and up, then you can get released from prison and be on home monitoring ankle bracelet. But it's not automatic. So this guy comes to my brother. He's like, this is what my sentence says. I've been in here long enough. Here's the paper I wrote up. <laughs> my brother is like, the paper goes something like, look, y'all MRFer said, if I stayed in here for this long, I could go home. And I've been here this long and I haven't done anything. So y'all need to let me out of here before I start getting mad. And my brother was like, okay. 
This, let's let's reword. Let's reword. <laughs> this is not helpful. He's like, let me write up a draft. So he like writes up a draft. The guy reads it. He's like, wow, this is great. My brother's like, yeah. There's a way to communicate, get your needs met. This is it. That's you don't threaten people, right? But like when you learn growing up that you have to threaten people to get your needs met, then you threaten people to get your needs met. My brother's like, that's not gonna work. Writes up the form, gives it to the guy. That guy went home August 22nd. Mm. He went home. Do you know if he had turned in that form threatening people, they were going to... You would never them. get out. You would have never ever. It would have tacked on some extra years. <laughs> so anyway, I tell this to say, my brother is the remarkable person he has always been. Mm-hmm. 28 years he's been behind bars. Yeah, just the act of service. Yeah, and and being living in living a life of purpose living a life of purpose is he does he have resentment is he does he carry that he doesn't care he doesn't carry it to the public if he does have it um i i mean i have resentment on his behalf certainly resentment for the system 100 percent resentment for the system but even he'll say like he's been there he's like in the 28 years i've been here he's like they've made a lot of improvements he said it used to be literally every night you went to sleep in prison. You didn't know if you were going to be dead. That's how violent it was. You didn't know if you were going to be raped. You didn't know if you were going to be stabbed. You didn't know if you were going to be dead. And he was like, the Indiana correctional system has made a lot of effort. And he was like, prison is a much safer place 28 years later. So like, he'll give them that. But he's like, but also... of these kids deserve a different chance than this. Is there anything that people can do to help? Um, There will be something that people can do to help. Um, So we do have a Facebook page for my brother. We don't do very much with it, but I think there will come a point where we will need to do some public advocacy. We're working the legal process. Um, right now but if people want to go follow his Facebook page just to be at the ready I would love that Kofi Emma Jabu is public you can find it all included in the show notes yeah that that is not ever him posting to be clear that is either me or my dad (laughs) who is posting and we hardly ever do it um but yeah he's just he's all he sounds remarkable yeah he's remarkable he's remarkable so why don't you talk a little bit about Eleanor and kind of what are you trying to do differently? Yeah. So Eleanor, I'm co-founder and chief medical officer. We started the company three years ago. Uh, It's really freaking growing lady. Oh my goodness. It's crazy. It's crazy. But you know, you plant healthy seeds and water them and they grow. Um, So really like the whole premise of our company is one that like people with substance use disorders, one deserve compassion and to have their humanity valued and a longitudinal treatment relationship. So we're like grounded in the understanding that substance use disorders are chronic conditions. You can't get at it with a five-day detox and think you're over kind of like you thought you were going to hit your five days on adult child. And she was like, it's going to be years, right? Yeah. Yep. yep. I'll be um, ready for a healthy romantic yeah, relationship exactly. with the man of my dreams. <laughs> so kind of like the 
the the clinical foundation for Eleanor Health is outpatient, longitudinal relationship, um, grounded in equity and harm reduction and trauma informed care and teamwork with the person who is receiving the care actually being the leader of that team. Um, and then from on the business model side, then like the problem is that the way we pay for substance use disorder care and healthcare more generally, like you have to wait until you're sick for the insurance company to cover anything. And then you get, you know, one day and it's like, good luck living after that. And so we're like, no, we really need to move to this concept of value-based care where you can't make a lot of money providing quantity of service if people are not actually getting better. Like people have to be getting better. And so we're super data and tech enabled to be able to meet people, like do that relationship, however you want to do that relationship, but also collecting data. Like when we say people are getting better, that's because we're measuring the people that we're taking care of. We take care of people with addiction at every phase of the illness during active use, during remission. We are a relationship here for you. From baseline to today, 70% of our people have had an improvement in their depression. 70% have had improved in their anxiety. 98% have had a reduction in their drug use. 45-ish percent have had an improvement in their social drivers of health. We're connecting people for physical healthcare coordination, right? Like it's a whole wraparound model. And our, our business thesis is like, if we can't give you those statistics, we will give money back. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't do what we're here to do, which is like help people get healthy and our mission, which is live amazing lives, amazing defined by them. Right. And so like, we can't just be like, oh, we had an appointment today. And you're like, here's some money. Like, what was the value of that appointment? (laughs) So population health, longitudinal relationships, autonomy, equity, harm reduction, compassion, like that's Eleanor Health. And it's so awesome. So we started three years ago. We are now in seven states. We'll have 40 clinics by the end of the year. We have absolutely amazing payer partners, even though I did that dig, like insurance won't pay for anything until you get sick. Like the reason we are growing is because we have amazing insurance partners that are trying to do it differently. And they're like just coming with us and we're like creating new innovative ways to pay for the care that we're delivering. And it's just... It's awesome. It's the same way I felt when I did that psych rotation in medical school. What, so what is your, I mean, what are you up to? Like, what are you doing like on a day to day? And do you see, do you see people individually at all? Uh, Mostly the answer is no, I don't see people. Do you miss that? Um, Yes, I miss it. But I also love, 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 love running the business and like, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, creating and creating a space because it's the same, like work is such a traumatic place for so many people. Um, and so like we're working hard at Eleanor to be trauma informed, not just for our community members, but for the people who are working for us, too. And it's like really a joy um, leading that. But day to day is like finding new payer partners, making sure we're creating the culture at Eleanor that helps people thrive, making sure our quality of care is top notch and better than anywhere else, making sure we're creating an experience that um, people value 
and we'll come back for making sure we value the people who are coming to us and that they know that. Um, and so it's like meetings, 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 travel, 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 fly, fly, fly. What is your thoughts about um, when to address trauma, like childhood shit, when it comes to in recovery? Because for me, it's like, I do feel like we have to treat what's killing us first. Yeah. I think that sometimes it could maybe be too much yeah. to look at right away. But then at the same time, I think that there's other people who probably aren't staying sober yep. because they're not looking at that shit. 100%. So look at the three stages of a trauma-informed approach. One is safety, physical and psychological safety. Two is grounding and physiological regulation. Three is action. So when you say, when do you start addressing the trauma? People think about addressing the trauma as the action stage. Like, tell yeah. me everything that happened to you and let's feel all of those feelings. And it's like, excuse me. Those <laughs> like, are I'm going to relapse now. <laughs> yeah, those are buried for a reason, right? And so you have to start with that physical and psychological safety. And that means the relationship, psychological safety in the relationship. And then- that physiological grounding and regulation, that's where you're building your coping skills to just very, very gently start being able to get under the surface. And so like very early on, I like to do the ACEs with people very early and be like, okay, ACEs score greater than four. This lets us know we have work to do. Let's talk about how we're going to do that work. First, we're going to work on getting to know each other, trust each other. Second, we're going to try to get this drug use down to where you want this drug use down or mitigate the harm, right, of the drug use. Then we're going to start putting a name to the physical sensations that you have, putting a name to the thoughts that you have, putting a name to the emotions that you have. And then we're going to start looking at what underlies that, but not until we have some good coping skills in place, right? Like that's, that's the trajectory of a trauma-informed approach. Not this, you came into treatment today and you're in a group, you're in a trauma. Yeah, let's go, let's do EMGR right now. You're in a trauma, <laughs> listening to everybody else's trauma that's triggering you before you have any coping skills, before you have any ability to regulate your physiological reaction. You know, are you still doing your podcast? Uh, so the podcast is not actively in production, but a, a new podcast will be coming. Oh, nice. Yeah. Follow me on Instagram. I will. Uh, I think I already do. But... Yeah. We're putting together a conversation. Is it going to be? Oh, nice. Is it going to be through with through Eleanor? It will not be through Eleanor, although Eleanor will be through and through. Yes, obviously. Um, yeah. How did um how did that come about? The podcast? No, creating Eleanor. Oh man, God bless LinkedIn, right? So like luckily I kind of keep this public persona. Um mm -hmm. or I, I I keep a public persona makes it sound fake. I like let people know who I am publicly, right? Um what I'm doing professionally and so Oxion and Town Hall Ventures are these companies that actually come up with ideas for companies, the venture studio. And so when the opioid crisis was getting the big media boom, they thought, is anybody doing value-based care, like quality, longitudinal quality and outcomes-based care for opioid use disorder? 
And they looked around the market and the answer was no. And so they said, if we created a company that was doing that, would people invest in it? Would people pay for it? So they went around the market and the answer was yes. And so they created that idea and then they go out and find a co-founding executive team, a founding executive team to turn the idea into a company. And they found Corbin and they found me. And my initial response was no, thank you, because people don't walk in the door only with opioid use disorder. If you, if I was like, if you really want me to get to outcomes, like I have to take care of the whole person that walks in the door. And they were like, well, you would be designing the clinical model. And I was like, like, okay, <laughs> wow. And then Corbin is like deep payer, healthcare reimbursement, badass expert. And then I came as the, you, you gave me badass at the top of the, mm-hmm, at the top I of did. the hour, um, clinical expert and the two of us came together with our third co-founder and turned the idea into a company. Here That's we awesome. Are. Where is it? It's based in Boston? Yeah, Waltham. Waltham. So Corbin lives up there. So she put the corporate office close to where she lives. So this I fly is, up there all this the has been such a pleasure. So fun, Andrea. I love this. I hope that you this was a little bit tell different. me you were going to dig all under the surface. I, lo- I cry, though. Probably anybody who's heard me on a podcast has heard me crying because I love crying. Oh, I wanted you to tell me that this was the only time so you could make me feel special. <laughs> sorry, sorry, kiddo. I just, you know, you got you got deeper though. I feel like this might be the deepest podcast. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did, and as always, if you didn't, um, maybe think about joining the damn Patreon. <laughs> uh, thanks again to Nzinga. That was such a awesome conversation. Um, really honored to have the opportunity to, to speak with her. So go check out the show notes for links to her stuff, as well as information about Eleanor Health. And as I said, I'll be sharing more with y'all in the upcoming weeks about their organization, which I think is doing a lot of amazing work. Um, what else? So keep my little Kiki in, in your prayers. So I was actually supposed to fly out yesterday to go attend my grandmother's funeral today. And Kiki had a seizure about an hour before I was supposed to leave. So, um, she's okay, but you know, she's my, she's my everything. She's my family. She's the the one consistent in my life, the love of my life. <laughs> so keep her in your prayers. Um, and what else? Not really much else. I'm excited. I'm, I'm going tonight to get a massage from one of our shit show members, Kelly. Super excited to, to meet in the flesh and, and have you put, put your hands on me. It's going to be more action than I've gotten in a while. <laughs> Um, and I will see you guys next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. How about you join the damn Patreon? How about you do give me a five-star review if you haven't done that already? And I'll see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super mama, super excited. If you already hear it, it's going to be a good day, I promise. Let it all go.